is section 20 of Pantrophion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Nienaber. Pantrophion by Alexis Sawyer. Hunting. From the first ages of the world, man has passionately loved the exercise of hunting. The dangers he then encountered inflamed his courage. It was glorious to struggle with the terrible inhabitants of the forest or the desert, to conquer them, to bring home their bleeding spoils, to furnish an heroic name for the songs of poets and the admiration of posterity. The sacred writings have handed down to us the name of the first mighty hunter before the Lord. They inform us that Ishmael, in the solitude of Arabia, became skillful in drawing the bow and that David, when yet young, dared to fight with lions and bears. Fable, that veiled light of truth, through which it sometimes glimmers, caused Hercules to be ranked with the gods when he had overthrown the lion of Nemea, the hydra of Lerna, and the wild boar of Erymanthus. Diana descended to the earth and pursued in the forests the timid stag, the Greeks raised altars to her, and the centaur Chiron learned of her the noble art of venery, which he, in his turn, taught to illustrious disciples, among whom are mentioned Aesculapius, Nestor, Theseus, Ulysses, and Achilles. Pollux trained the first hunting dogs, and Castor accustomed horses to follow the track of wild beasts. From that time, heroes, when resting from real conquests, sought diversion in games nearly as formidable and imitative of their combats, which often placed their lives in danger. Ulysses, for example, always bore the scar of a wound inflicted by a wild boar. The most grave philosophers and the most illustrious poets have bestowed praises on the chase. Aristotle advised young men to apply themselves to it early. Plato finds in it something divine. Horace looks upon it as healthful exercise, strengthening to the body and preparing the way for glory, and indeed this heroic and royal exercise always possessed irresistible attraction for the greatest men of antiquity. The warriors of Homer, Pelopidas, Alexander of Macedon, Philippamon, seemed to derive from it fresh warlike ardor. The ancients hunted in the open country, in forests and in parks, mounted on fiery steeds armed with javelins and long cutlasses or with swords and lances they excited their indefatigable hounds and promised to desecrate to diana the stag's horns or the tusks of a boar which might become their prey the greeks and romans reared hunting dogs with extreme care and they began to make use of them from the age of eight or ten months these animals had names short sonorous and easy to be pronounced such as lance flower, blade, strength, arden, etc. The strongest and most courageous came from England and Scotland. Crete, Tuscany, and Umbria were the nurseries of the most expert. The Gallic dogs surpassed all others by their agility and astonishing swiftness. Females were generally preferred to the males, either because they were more docile or pursued the game with more ardor and persistence. It may be as well to remark, too, in this place, that the Greeks thought much more of mares than of horses for chariot racing. The dogs were always chained. Their liberty was only given them at the moment of starting for the chase. Their fire and ferocity were then incredible. 
they dashed off with fury and when they succeeded in coming up with their prey some would suffer their legs to be cut off rather than lose their hold the indian dogs trained for lion hunting often gave this proof of obstinate and implacable rage the ancients also took game by means of pits covered over with brushwood in snares with traps and with nets moreover they often made use of bows and arrows and understood the art of training falcons and hawks eastern princes amused themselves by hunting in parks where a great number of wild beasts were kept the romans had too much taste and money and too great a desire to spend it not to imitate this expensive and royal luxury fulvius herpinus possessed a park of forty acres near viterbo in tuscany lucius lucullus and quintus hortensius hastened to create more beautiful ones and they did not fail to have a host of imitators by the roman law hunting was unrestricted only no person could pursue game on another's land without the owner's permission besides the pleasure which this amusement afforded the ancients like ourselves discovered profit in it and the produce of their chase became one of the finest ornaments of their feasts isaac ordered his son esau to go out with his weapons his quiver and bow and to prepare for him savory meat such as he loved venison solomon had stags roebucks and wild oxen served on his table every day cyrus king of persia ordered that venison should never be wanting at his repasts is it necessary to add that it was the delight of two nations the most gastronomic in the world of the effeminate greeks and more especially those romans for whom the animals of the earth ocean and air were only to be valued in proportion to the impossibility of obtaining them in europe asia and africa an immense inheritance conquered by noble ancestors by which their degenerated sons ransacked for their satisfaction and insatiable gluttony the english have always loved hunting the favorite pastime of their kings alfred the great was not twelve years old when he had acquired the reputation of being a skillful and indefatigable hunter the noble and the wealthy differed from the serfs by their singular taste for this royal diversion and in their pursuit of it they spared neither pains nor expense in procuring those famous dogs of pure race which the ancient greeks and romans prized so highly when athelstan alfred's grandson had subdued constantine king of wales he imposed an annual tribute the vanquished monarch had to give him gold silver cattle and which is remarkable a certain number of hawks and dogs possessing a quick scent and capable of unkenneling wild beasts edgar the successor of athelstan changed the tribute of money into an annual tribute of three hundred wolf skins notwithstanding his great piety and the extreme reserve of his habits edward the confessor took great delight in following the hounds and exciting their ardor by his cries king harold never appeared anywhere without his favorite hawk on his hand neither was the approach of the british nimrod announced otherwise than by the joyous barking of the royal pack indeed at that epoch every person of distinction took the prince as his model and gave himself up heart and soul to what people are pleased to call the noble exercise of hunting this aristocratic taste became so extremely prevalent under the domination of the norman kings that a writer of the twelfth century has judged it with great severity in our time he says hunting is considered as the most honorable occupation the most excellent virtue 
our nobility show more solicitude, sacrifice more money, and make a greater parade in favor of it than they would if the question were war. They are more furious in the pursuit of wild beasts than they would be if they had to conquer the enemies of Great Britain. As a necessary consequence, they no longer retain any sentiment of humanity. They have descended almost to the level of the savage animals they are in the daily habit of tracking and unkenneling. These uncomplimentary observations of John of Salisbury did not prevent James I from pursuing the cherished diversion of his predecessors. That prince, being one day at the hunt in the environs of Bury St. Edmunds, remarked, among the persons composing his suite, an opulent citizen magnificently dressed, whose rich costume eclipsed that of the lords the most renowned at court for the elegance of their attire. The king asked who the hunter was. Someone replied that it was lamb. Lamb, say you, rejoined the king, laughing. I don't know what sort of lamb that may be, but what I know well is that he's got a superb fleece on his back. THE STAG Roman ladies of the highest distinction arrived at that age when, in making an estimate of life, it is found that the largest portion belongs to the past. These ladies, we say, failed not to have the flesh of this animal served on their tables, and to eat as much of it as possible. Perchance it had but a slight attraction for the worthy matrons, and yet they preferred it to every other, for this reason, that the stag being free from maladies and infirmities, at least so it was thought, prolongs its existence far beyond the bounds which nature has assigned to other beings. The noble patrician ladies would not have been sorry to survive their great-grandchildren, and they took the means which appeared to them most likely to ensure longevity. If the celebrated Galen had lived in their time, he would have told those credulous Roman ladies that this kind of food could not fail to be hurtful to them, that this indigestible and heating meat is more likely to provoke disease than to destroy its germ, and that, consequently, death finds in it an auxiliary rather than an enemy. True, the Oracle of Pergama wrote nearly all this a century later, and yet his medical authority was powerless to persuade, although it may have convinced the obstinate Epicureans of his period. In point of fact, whatever Galen may say, what dreadful accidents can a piece of stag properly cooked produce? Moses, so attentive to the health of his people, allows them the use of it. Solomon, the wisest of men, ate it every day. Do we find that the Jewish monarch and his people were any worse for preferring this food? At Athens, at Rome, and in all Italy, whoever possessed the intelligence of appreciating good cheer took care to offer to his friends the shoulder or fillet of stag. Nevertheless, gastronomists by profession, who so generously devoted their fortunes to the service of the culinary art, abandoned the whole animal to their slaves, and only reserved for themselves the most tender shoots of the horns. These were for a long time boiled, then cut into very small pieces, and this strange dish, seasoned with a mixture of pepper, cumin, savory, rue, parsley, bay leaves, fat, and pine nuts, sprinkled with vinegar and fried, passed for an exquisite and dainty treat, worthy of the most flattering praises. Quarter of Stag, Roast a la Nemienne Put into a saucepan pepper, alisander, carrots, wild marjoram, parsley seed, benzoin root, and fennel seed. Add garum, wine, cooked wine, and a little oil. 
Boil over a slow fire, thicken with fine flour, pour on the roast stag, and serve. Shoulder of stag, a la Hortensius. Cook in a saucepan, carrots, alisander, with pepper and parsley seed. Add honey, garum, vinegar, and lukewarm oil. Thicken with fine flour, and pour this sauce on the shoulder of stag when roasted. Filet of stag, a la Persane. Roast it and at the moment of placing it on the table, cover it with a seasoning of pepper, alisander, scallions, wild marjoram, onions, and pine nuts, previously mixed with honey, garum, mustard, vinegar, and oil. THE ROEBUCK The flesh of the roebuck, according to Galen, has none of the bad qualities which he attributes to that of the stag. Asclepius and Comus for this once agreed, which very seldom happened, in praising the beneficial properties and the delicious odor of these timid quadrupeds. The Greeks thought much of the roebuck, they obtained the best from the island of Milos, and served them at their most sumptuous repasts. They were, perhaps, more rarely seen on Roman tables. Roebuck with spikenard. Pound in a mortar, pepper, parsley seed, dry onion, and green root. Add spikenard and then honey, vinegar, garum, dates, cooked wine and oil. Mix well the whole and cover the roast with it. Roebuck aux prunes. Mix pepper, alisander, and parsley after having pounded them. Add to this a good quantity of Damascus plums, which you have soaked in hot water. Then add honey, wine, vinegar, garum, and a little oil, and lastly leeks and savory. Serve the roebuck with this sauce. Roebuck a amande de pain. Bruise pepper, alisander, parsley, and cumin. Mix it with a great quantity of fried pine nuts and add honey, vinegar, wine, a little oil, and garum. Pour it over the roebuck. The deer. Little need be said with regard to this charming animal, whose slender and graceful form was the admiration of those who visited the parks of Lucullus and Herpinus. Its flesh was thought to be less wholesome than that of the roebuck, because it was found to be less succulent. Apicius has consecrated to it four culinary recipes, all very similar. Deer a la Marcellus Put into a saucepan pepper, gravy, rue, and onions. Add honey, garum, cooked wine, and a little oil. Boil very slowly, thicken with flour, and pour the whole on the deer when roasted. THE WILD BOAR It was in the year 63, before the Christian era. The consul Marcus Tullius Cicero had just accused and convicted Catalina, and Rome, free from present danger, had forgotten all transitory solicitudes of the past to welcome joyous banquetings. A worthy citizen, excellent patriot, distinguished gastronomist, and possessor of an immense fortune, of which he made the best use, at least so said several choice epicures, his habitual guests, Servilius Rullus, such was his name, thought of celebrating by an extraordinary banquet the triumph of the illustrious consul and the deliverance of the country. His cook, a young Sicilian slave of the greatest promise, and whose mode of cooking a dish of sow's paps procured him one day a smile of approbation from Lucullus, succeeded especially in those eminent performances which command the admiration of the guests and give new strength to their exhausted appetites. Rullus sent for him, and spoke thus, 
Recollect that in three days Cicero will sup here. Let the feast be worthy of him who gives it. The Sicilian even surpassed himself. As soon as the guests had tasted the enticing delicacies of the first course, the hall echoed with an unanimous concert of applause, and the proud Amphitryon, intoxicated with joy, was going to ask that a crown may be presented to his beloved slave, when the cook appeared, followed by four Ethiopians, who gracefully carried a silver vase of prodigious dimensions, in the shape of a large mortar. This extraordinary dish contained a wild boar, baskets of dates were suspended to his tusks, and charming little wild boars in exquisite pastry, no doubt, for never was there a more tempting culinary exhalation, artistically surrounded the enormous animal. Every voice was hushed, the guests waited in silence the most profound. The tables of the second service were placed round the guests, who raised themselves on the couches with greedy curiosity. The blacks deposited the precious burden before another domestic, a skillful carver, who opened the wild boar with incredible dexterity and precision, and presented to the astonished eyes of Rollus and his friends a second entire animal, and in this a third. Then came fresh delicacies, all gradually diminishing in size, until at length a delicious little fig-pecker terminated this series of strange viands, of which Rome, wondering and astonished, long preserved the gastronomic remembrance. Man seldom prescribes himself to reasonable limits in the vast field of vanity and ostentation. At first it was thought an enviable boldness to have dared to serve an entire boar of a large size. Everyone did the same thing, and at length it became quite common. It was necessary, then, to do better. One thought of having three at the same time, another had four, and soon the extravagant, and they were not few, caused eight wild boars a la Troyenne to appear at a single repast. The Macedonian Carinus, a man of spirit and of merit, placed himself at once on an eminence which baffled rivalry. He invited twenty guests to his wedding and he had twenty wild boars served. It must be confessed that such magnificence rather resembles folly, but, alas, has not every nation its failings? Besides, the flesh of the wild boar enjoyed an astonishing reputation in Rome and Greece, and no one could, with credit to himself, receive his friends at his table without presenting them with the fashionable dish, the animal appointed by nature to appear at banquets. At length, however, they began to tire of this enormous dish. They divided it into three portions, and the middle piece obtained the preference. Ultimately, they served only the fillet and head, the latter of which was more particularly esteemed by the Romans. The Greeks tried their appetites by tasting the liver, which was served at the first course. The Romans sought to deprive the wild boar of its terrible ferocity. They raised them on their farms and sometimes they acquired enormous proportions. These immense beasts weighed no less than a thousand pounds, but delicate connoisseurs always had the wisdom to prefer the dangerous inhabitant of the forest to these bloated victims of enervating domesticity, whose insipid and degenerate flavor hardly betrayed their origin. The wild boar was generally surrounded by pyramids of fruits and lettuces. Wild Boar a la Pompeii Clean and salt a wild boar. Cover it with cumin. Let it remain in salt during twenty-four hours. Then roast it. 
sprinkle with pepper, and serve with a seasoning of honey, garum, sweet and cooked wine. Quarter of Wild Boar a la Thébaine. Cook it in seawater with bay leaves. When very tender, take off the skin, and serve with salt, mustard, and vinegar. Filet of Wild Boar a la Macedonienne. Pound pepper, alisander, wild marjoram, skinned myrtle leaves, coriander, and onions. Add honey, wine, garum, and a little oil. This seasoning must be submitted to a gentle fire. Thicken with flour and pour the whole over the wild boar as you draw it from the oven. Wild boar's liver a la grec. Fry it and serve with a seasoning of pepper, cumin, parsley seed, mint, thyme, savory and roasted pine nuts, to which add honey, wine, garum, vinegar, and a little oil. Wild Boar's Head a la Cantabray Make the seasoning in the following manner. Mix well pepper a la sander, parsley seed, mint, thyme, and roasted pine nuts. Add wine, vinegar, garum, and a little oil. Afterwards onions and roux. Thicken with whites of eggs, Boil over a slow fire and stir gently. Green Ham of Wild Boar a la Galoise Insert a long and narrow blade at the joint and carefully separate the skin from the flesh so that the latter may be well covered with the following seasoning. Pound pepper, bay leaves, rue, and benzoin. Add to it some excellent gravy, cooked wine, and a little oil. Fill the ham. Close the opening and then cook it in seawater with some tender shoots of laurel and dill. Under the Norman kings, the wild boar's head was considered a noble dish, worthy of the sovereign's table. This, we are told, was brought to the king's table with the trumpeters, sounding their trumpets before it in procession. For, says Hollinshed, upon the day of coronation of young Henry, King Henry II, his father, served him at table as sewer, bringing up the boar's head with trumpets afore it, according to the ancient manner. A very small consumption is made of the old wild boar. The flesh is hard, dry, and heavy. The head only is good. The young wild boar is a fine and delicate game, also when a year old. The ancients submitted those that they could take away from their mother to castration, and left them afterwards to run about the woods, where these animals became larger than the others, and acquired savor and flavor which made them preferable to the pigs we rear. THE HARE Plutarch contends that the Jews abstained from eating the hare, not because they thought it unclean, but because it resembled the ass, which they revered. This is only a pleasantry on the part of the celebrated writer, with no other foundation than the fabulous tale of the grammarian Appian, who asserts in his book against the Jews that they preserved in Jerusalem an ass's head which they adored. We know that a sanitary motive was the cause of this animal being interdicted to the Israelites, and it has also been remarked that the ancient Britons abstained from it. This mammifer, everywhere very common, swarmed in the east, if we are to believe Xenophon, who saw a great number of them when marching with his troops to join young Cyrus. Greece was abundantly stocked with them. The inhabitants of islands of the Aegean Sea had more than once to deplore the ravages which hunger caused these timid animals to commit, and whose fecundity they cursed. Hagasander relates that, under the reign of Antigonus, an inhabitant of the island of Anaf brought two hares into the neighborhood. 
their posterity became so numerous that the people were obliged to implore the gods to preserve the harvest and to annihilate their formidable enemies. As the immortals turned a deaf ear to these complaints, recourse was had to Apollo alone, and the Pythonissa deigned to return this oracle, Train hunting dogs and they will exterminate the hares. The advice was good and deemed worthy of being adopted. The Greeks esteemed highly the flesh of this quadruped, which was served roasted but almost bleeding, or made into delicious pies, much in vogue in the time of Aristophanes. Hippocrates had, however, forbidden the use of it. The hare, said he, thickens the blood and causes cruel wakefulness. But Epicurism will always think lightly of Hygean precepts which do not accord with its own ideas. At all events, Galen was not of the same opinion as his colleague, and Galen must be right. The emperor Alexander Severus eat a hare at each of his repasts. Perhaps that prince shared the opinion of the Romans, who thought that a person who fed on hare for seven consecutive days became fresher, fatter, and more beautiful. A lady named Gelia had a large share of that unfortunate gift of nature, which we call ugliness. She resolved to make a trial of this regimen, and submitted to it with a regularity really exemplary. She showed herself at the end of the week, and we are informed that no one thought her any the prettier for it. The epicures of Rome contented themselves with eating the shoulder of the hare, and left the remainder to less fastidious guests. THE RABBIT The conies are but feeble folks, yet make they their houses in the rocks. They taught mankind, it is said, the art of fortification, mining, and covered roads. These skillful engineers come originally from warm climates, from Africa, perhaps, whence they were brought to Spain. They there became so numerous, and dug so well their holes beneath the houses of Tarragona, that that city was completely overthrown, and the greater part of the inhabitants buried beneath its ruins. Catullus calls Spain Caniculosa Celtiberia, Celtiberian rabbit warren, and two medals, struck in the reign of Adrian, represent that peninsula under the form of a beautiful woman, clothed in a robe and mantle, with a rabbit at her feet. This animal was called in Hebrew Safan, of which the Phoenicians have made Spania, and the Latins Hispania. Strabo relates that the inhabitants of the Balearic Islands, despairing of being able to oppose the extraordinary propagation of rabbits, which nearly rendered their country uninhabitable, sent ambassadors to Rome to implore assistance against this new kind of enemy. Augustus furnished them with troops, and the Roman arms were once more victorious. Aristotle says nothing of the rabbit, which probably was then little known in Greece. It afterwards became common enough, and that of Macedonia in particular found favor at tables renowned for delicacies. The Romans, those bold innovators in cookery, so desirous of strange and unheard-of dishes, would only consent to eat rabbits on condition of their being killed before they had left off sucking, or taken alive from the slaughtered mother to be immediately transferred to the ardent stoves of their kitchens. It was certainly reserved for that people to frighten the world by all kinds of culinary anomalies. THE FOX a young fox, fattened on grapes and roasted on the spit, is a tidbit for a king during the autumn. Such was the idea of the Roman peasants, but we must be allowed, however, to differ from their opinion. 
the hedgehog the greeks willingly eat the hedgehog in a ragu a dish the romans never envied them the squirrel this charming little animal which ought never to please but when alive often appeared at rome among the most elegant dishes of the feast at first it was only eaten by caprice unfortunately for the little animal it was found to be very nice the camel aristotle gives the greatest praise to the flesh of this useful animal and places it without hesitation above the most delicate viands the greeks his countrymen thought it worthy of being roasted for the table of sovereigns and the inhabitants of persia and egypt partook of the same enthusiasm rome thought the camel fit for the solitude of the desert but not for the ornament of banquets and really for this once rome appears to have been right the flesh of the young dromedary is as good as that of veal and the arabs make of it their common food they preserve it in vases which they cover with fat they make butter and cheese with the milk of the female desmarest the ancients in their wars made use of dromedaries the soldiers when upon these animals formed a particular militia in the egyptian expedition bonaparte renewed this ancient custom and that cavalry caused a great deal of injury to the bedouins and arabs besides the rider each dromedary carried provisions and munitions of war the elephant certain wandering tribes of asia and africa were thought formerly to be very fond of grilled elephant the egyptians went so far in their pursuit of this delicacy that the king ptolemy philadelphus was forced to forbid them under pain of the most severe laws to kill one of these animals whose number diminished every day the law was disregarded and the elephant only possessed greater attractions for them in our days also some semi-savage nations partake of the same taste le Veillon, a celebrated traveller and a most distinguished gastronomist tells us that the first time he partook of an elephant's trunk which was served him by the hottentots he resolved that it should not be the last for nothing appeared to him of a more exquisite flavour but he reserves his greatest praises for the foot of the colossal quadruped we will let him speak for himself they cut off the four feet of the animal and made in the earth a hole about three feet square this was filled with live charcoal and covering the hole with very dry wood a large fire was kept up during part of the night when they thought that the hole was hot enough it was emptied a hottentot then placed within it the four feet of the animal covered them with hot ashes and then with charcoal and small wood and this fire was left burning until the morning my servants presented me at breakfast with an elephant's foot it had considerably swelled in the cooking i could hardly recognize the shape but it appeared so good exhaled so inviting an odor that i hastened to taste it it was a dish for a king although i had often heard a bear's foot praised i could not conceive how so heavy so material an animal as the elephant could furnish a dish so fine and delicate and i devoured without bread my elephant's foot while my hottentots seated around me regaled themselves with other parts which they found equally delicious the romans never evinced fondness for the flesh of the elephant this animal with its gigantic proportions and rare intelligence was found to be so amusing to the nation of kings when dancing on the tightrope or in the terrible combats of the circus 
that they hardly thought of roasting it or making it into fricassees. We cannot, however, affirm the gastronomic eccentricity of some Roman epicure did not dream of a monstrous feast, in which he may have offered to his guests an elephant a la Trienne on a silver dish made purposely for the occasion. End of section 20